I trust that was our prayer. God would use us wherever he calls us. I'm happy to be here, not up here, but I'm happy to be with you in this process. If I count it correctly, I think this would be your 12th ordination in this place. And uh, ordination, somebody said that if a church can stand an ordination or we can stand a building program, they're pretty solid. So probably an ordination, especially for young people, uh, raises a lot of questions, at least the way we do it. And uh, a lot of people who would observe the way we do it would uh, raise a lot of questions, and uh, probably rightly so. But the fact that I was involved in three of those ordinations gave me the confidence that God can work, and God has worked in the Bethel Church when it comes to providing leadership. Uh, I suppose most of those who were involved in these ordinations in the past are present here, probably not quite all of them. So I say it raises a lot of questions. How do we First of all, how does the church, what role does the church play in an ordination? It's what we want to think about this morning, particularly this afternoon. Excuse me, the afternoon we'll talk about more about qualifications for a minister. But this morning we want to talk about what place, what role does the church play in this thing of uh, providing leadership for a congregation? How do we go about doing it? Should it be done like some places where somebody just comes forward and says, you know, I believe I have the call of God to to preach, and uh, and I would assume that role. Uh, Maybe that'd be one way to do it. Or we could say, well, why don't we, uh, since we used a lot uh, when it's necessary, Why don't we just involve all the men? We just use a lot for everybody and let God choose that way. Um, One thing's sure, and I want to emphasize, is the fact that the church needs to be in good relationship with God. To hear the voice of God that God can move through the church to provide this leadership. And I want to look at a couple of scriptures real quickly before we go further into this message. Uh, And one thing I want us to notice in these passages that I want to read is the word one mind. One mind. Turn with me first of all to Romans chapter 15. Here... uh, In this passage, Paul is dealing with the question that the church was grappling with is uh, what about these things of the law? Milo mentioned some of that in the Sunday school class this morning. What about meats offered to idols? Should we or should we not? That was quite an issue, evidently, in the early church I'm not quite sure because 
I'm not quite sure how the how all that uh, related, but that was quite an issue. And so this is what Paul says in relation to that question, chapter 15, verse 5 in the book of Romans. Now the God of patience and con consolation grant you to be like-minded, one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God to the Father even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one mouth, glorify God. All right, let's go to the next book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the issue there is uh, <clears throat> certain emphasis on different leaders. And one said, I like Paul, and said, I like Peter, and, and uh, so on. And chapter 1, verse 10. And it, uh, wait a minute, I'm in, sorry. Here we go. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now in Philippians, Paul is describing the fact that in the church there was a lot of um, problems, people who were preaching the wrong things for the wrong reasons. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your communication be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we could go on to other scriptures. Uh, in Peter, for example, when Paul was, or Peter rather, was addressing the issue of submission to authority, he talked about submission to uh, church leadership, he talked about of sl slaves being submissive to their masters, talks about wives submitting to their husbands, and the husbands being submitted to Christ, to the Lord. But the, the goal of the church, as Paul and Peter and the, the, gospel, the uh, scriptures address it, is that we with one mind and one mouth, we glorify God. But we're different individuals. This does not mean that we become carbon copies of each other. But rather we have one goal. We have one goal in mind. And hopefully for you here at Bethel is the goal to provide leadership for your congregation that will help unify and strengthen the church to be the kind of church that we need to be in our day today. <clears throat> A divided church is not a good position to find the will of God. <clears throat> How do we find it? How do we find the will of God as a congregation? Uh, some people may say, well, uh, let's just assume that Leon's our Pope and uh, he'll go to God and Get the answer from God and bring it to us and tell this is it. This is what it is. 
Or uh, do we expect God to write it in the sky or God come down and audibly speak to us? When he did that to Israel in chapter 20 of Exodus, the people said, that's, that's beyond us. That's, uh, you, Moses, you speak to us. You speak to God and then let God speak to you, to us. One of the questions that has often come, why if God, if we are in one mind, in one heart, and we're praying to God to give us direction, why doesn't it end up as just one name? That's a good question. And I'm not sure that I have the full of the answer except for the fact that I don't think that any one person in the church has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. And God expects the church to work together to find the mind of God. In the early church, the apostles said to the church, Look ye out from among you men who are qualified. You take that responsibility. I mean, think God wants the church involved, the whole body involved in this process. The final result, we hope, when this is all over with, is that person who is chosen can feel with confidence that God has called him. And he has called him through the church. You'll need that in the days ahead. To have the confidence that God called me because you may not, as a congregation, may not understand it, but uh, the ministry and call to be a leader, church leader, to be a shepherd of the flock, does have its difficult times. I remember very well 53 years, one month and one day ago, walking down this aisle. About three-quarter way back, a brother said to me, Eli, we're behind you. Now, that was a tremendous encouragement because I felt like I had received a load on me that I'd never experienced before. And it was a frightening thing to walk off this bench and down that aisle to know that this was not for six months, this was not for a year, this was for a lifetime. Of course, as time went on, there were times of discouragement, there were times that I wondered um, whether I was able to fulfill the calling that God had called me to. That brother said, we're behind you. Maybe those I couldn't feel them. Maybe they were so far behind that I couldn't feel them anymore. But uh, that person will need that confidence that God has called them. We're facing, the church is facing an increasingly hostile world. I don't have to tell you that. If you keep up with anything with the news and what's happening in our world today, what's happening in our society today, you will understand and you agree with me that 
that, that things are getting increasingly dark in our world. Things happening that I, I just can't fathom, I can't grasp that people can stoop so low. Like the lady just recently who took the teddy bear and uh, held it over the, her little son's mouth until he died. We get the Lynchburg paper, and Lynchburg is not a very safe place. Shootings, thank you. Shootings and killings and going on. We're facing in a hostile world, and God is calling us to this world as a church to demonstrate Jesus Christ. But well, we can talk about that out there, but the thing that concerns me even more than that is the fact that in so-called churchanity, that seemingly the church as a whole has gotten, gotten lukewarm and casual and, and uh, selfish and indifferent to their calling of holiness. That's the kind of world we're facing. Even in our own circles, I, I sometimes cringe, I sometimes and burden because I see within my own people things of independent spirit. You know, I don't need you. Don't tell me what to do. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. That's not the way the church operates. Or divisions and separations and unrest and confusion and dissatisfaction all over the place. That saddens me because that's not the kind of picture that Christ wants the church to give to our world. And young people see this and they become indifferent to the things of God, the church life. So let me remind you this morning as we think about an ordination. It's a very sobering thought to think what the scripture says about leadership in Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. It says, they shall give an account. Church leaders will someday give an account. I say, I, I find that sobering. We're going to have to give an account for what, how we fulfill that responsibility before God. A preacher friend of mine of years past is gone now. I already made this statement. I'm not sure that I agree with him 100%, but I understand what he was trying to say. He said that once the person becomes a minister, becoming a minister lessens a person's chance of getting to heaven by 50%. And what are you saying that that this places a responsibility on him, accountability on him, that um, takes the grace of God. Well, let's think about the church. What should the church be like? I'd like to suggest this morning that the church is an army. 
we sing that song, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching as to War. We're in a battle. And Paul often uses the, the example of soldiers and the equipment that the soldier has to, to fight the battle. Paul describes the life, Christian life as a battle. He said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. Now we're not in a playground, we're in a battlefield. We're in a battlefield. In Ephesians chapter six, talking about the principalities and powers, maybe I'll just read that very familiar passage. Finally, my brethren, chapter six, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness in the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins scorned about with truth, and having a breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherein you shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and the supplication for all saints. Stand and withstand. That takes strong men. That takes soldiers of Jesus Christ in the, in the face of all this opposition, this darkness, principalities and powers to be able to stand and to withstand. It takes strong men. It takes committed men. It takes a committed church, an individual, to be able to stand. Yeah, the work of the Church of Jesus Christ is not for cowards. We're in a battle. But there's tremendous power in unity. To be unified, be of the same mind. As I said before, not that we think alike in everything, but we have a same goal. The purity of the Church of Jesus Christ and the fact that this church can be a light in this dark world in which we live. That others might come to know him. Couldn't help but think about Gideon and his army. That's an interesting story in Judges chapter 6 and 7. I'm not going to take time to turn to it this morning. But have you think with me. The Midianites, the Bible says, were around God's people, the Jewish people, as grasshoppers. And it says their camels without, were without number. Tremendous army. Tremendous group of people. And they would come and destroy the crops. They would steal 
their crops and so on. And it was a terrible time for God's people. They would have to hide when they were thrashing for fear the Midianites would come and steal the, their uh, wheat or whatever it was. But God called Gideon, and he said this. I'm just putting in my own words. Gideon, if you do it the way I tell you to do it, you will be able to smite the Midianites as one man. There would be a unified effort. And you'll be able, in spite of the, their numbers, in spite of the fact they have camels and you're just walking, you'll be able to smite them as one man. You do it my way. What unity? Group of men, an army, doing it like one man, unified. And you know the story. The first thing that Gideon was to do was to get rid of sin within the camp. He was to destroy Baal uh, altar, tear it down, destroy the grove where they worship Baal. That was the first step. Then he was to be very careful in choosing his army. You remember he started out with 32,000. And he ended up with 30, uh, 300 rather, 300 men. And you wondered, how are these 300 men going to conquer a nation of people who said they're like grasshoppers all over the place? But there were 300 men who were unafraid, 300 men who were alert. 300 men who were listening to their commander, how to do it. 300 men who were obedient. And Gideon told them how to do it. I think God had told him how to do it. They were to surround the camp of the Midianites. All they had was a trumpet a pitcher with a light inside. And they surrounded the camp. And uh, they were to, at the announcement of Gideon, they were to break the pitcher, hold the lamp, blow the trumpet, and shout, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. I think the secret for that final victory was the fact that it says in chapter 7, 21, there stood every man in his place. Everywhere the enemy looked, there was a light. Everywhere the enemy looked, heard, there was a sound, a unified message. Unity. And they truly smote the Midianites as one man. 
that's what unity does. That's what a unified effort under the direction of God can do. Yes, we're facing a hostile world, but folks, we can be victorious through Christ. I'm told that there was once a city in Greece called Sparta. And Sparta didn't have a wall around it, which was evidently a very unusual for cities at that time because walls were very important to them because of enemies coming. They had this wall around it to protect them. And so somebody made a comment to the king of Sparta. Where's your wall? The king took him and showed him his army. He's 10,000 men, every man a brick. Every man a brick. He said, there's the wall. I would pray that God could see that in Bethel. Every man a brick. Every man in there in this place with a lamp and a message. Unify. Furthermore, the church is to be like a brotherhood. A brotherhood. Now, I don't know, but it seems to me that perhaps the fact that family life has deteriorated in our society and maybe had its effect on us as a church as well, that the deterioration of family life has affected our understanding of what brotherhood really is. In some families, it appears like Home is little more than a fast food place and a motel. Everybody goes his own way. Everybody does his own thing. Brotherhood is really not very well understood, what it really means to be brothers. That's always been the case, I guess. I've been told that a certain family I knew, quite a large family, came in at the dinner table and was sitting around the table and the parents noticed one of them was missing. And they said, where's so-and-so? said, well, he's laying out there on the barn floor. I think he broke his leg. That's kind of the way some people see church life. About all that matters, you know, it's my thing what the other person does you know, it's not really, not really involved. Brotherhood. How do brothers relate who have the same father, who are part of the same family? Brotherhood. We have a, one of the girls in our congregation is quite an artist. And uh, I used uh, in a message one time uh, the picture that I remember seeing years ago, I think it was maybe an advertisement for some boy's home or something, 
It was a picture of a little fella carrying somebody else on his back, almost as big as he was. And the caption underneath was, he's not heavy, he's my brother. I like that. Well, this girl in our church, she got two of the boys in our congregation, two brothers, to, uh, she could take a picture. He was carrying, the older brother was carrying the younger one on his, on his back. Underneath, he's not heavy, he's my brother. And she drew that picture and, uh, and, and gave it to me. I have it, have it there on, on a bookcase. He's not heavy. He's my brother. In Romans chapter 12, you know, after you get the first number of chapters in Romans, you get to the last part, and that's kind of typical of Paul's writing, you get to the practical things. How these practical how being in Christ and being justified and being <clears throat> redeemed, how that really works out in everyday life. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says this. We're talking about brotherhood. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. <clears throat> I was at a church one time at uh, it's not was not a Mennonite church, another church. And in front of the church there was a whole bench of preachers, I assume preachers. They were sitting there before the preaching began, and uh, while we were waiting for it to start, uh, they'd already sang a few songs. Uh, the, the first man, he kind of leaned over to the man beside him and whispered something, and then that person leaned over to the next person beside him and whispered something, and went on down the line that way, and finally one of them got up and started preaching, and he preached a powerful message. But I wonder what was going on. What, what were they doing? Whispering to each other. And I found out later that what they were doing, that the first man would say, I give you preference. And he goes to the next and I give you preference. And finally, uh, the, the person that uh, evidently uh, was supposed to preach got up and preached. I have something about that that I assume it has get, had kind of become a ritual. And uh, he said that he thinks pretty well before they started, knew who was going to do the preaching. But anyway, that's a marvelous brotherhood concept. I give you preference. You do it. <clears throat> now that calls for real surrender. Paul said, in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Especially when it comes to an ordination, when there are two people or three people involved, and only one's going to be ordained. I give you preference. That's brotherhood. calls for real surrender, to be able to say, I'll do it, 
but I'm willing to let you do it. I'll be glad for you to do it. That's what you call Gelassenheit. Gelassenheit is a German term that I'm not sure if I can quite get my uh, mind around. But it has the idea of a humble, surrendered uh, attitude. And that's what the Anabaptist, early Anabaptist, uh, emphasized to God's people as Gelassenheit, that kind of humble, submitted, uh, committed spirit. Calls for surrender. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Brotherhood. Jesus said to disciples when he was telling the disciples that he was going to leave and his disciples were sad about that. And Jesus said in chapter 14 of John, he said, if you really love me, you'd rejoice with me because I'm going to the Father who is greater than I. I'm going to be experiencing something really wonderful, going back to the Father. If you really love me, you'd rejoice with me. You'd be glad for me. That's brotherhood when we're able to do that. It's brotherhood when we can say to the other person, you take the high road, I'll take the low road. You go to the high room, I'll take the low room. You take the noticed position, I'll take the unnoticed position. That's real brotherhood. And have that kind of spirit. Furthermore, I think this is probably very, um, we're very well aware of this. The Bible talks about that the church is like a body. A body. Many members, all controlled by the head. The Bible says Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the head. And it's amazing how the body works. You just stop and think about it. You know, the controls are all up here, I guess. But uh, my members are all the way down to the floor. But this control up here can control what this down here does. That's the way the body works. Whether one member suffer, Paul says, when he's talking about members of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one member suffers, all the other members suffer with it. It's probably a bit easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. But all members suffer with it. It's a terrible thing when the body begins attacking each other. When members of the body or parts of the body begin attacking each other. <clears throat> and I'm not a doctor, not that well acquainted with medical terms to uh, be able to tell you what that term is. But there's a term that's used is when the body begins attacking each other, destroying each other. But the healthy body compensates for the weakness of another or the difficulty of another. 
Some years ago, I got a sh shaper in the shop, and I looked at that bit, and I thought, that's an awful-looking thing. person would get his hand in that bit and just chew it up, I'm sure. So I was very careful and put a guards over top of it, and I did, when I was through, I just said to myself, you know, if anybody gets his hand in there, he'll just have to stick it in, I guess. I was making some raised panel doors one day, and somehow my hand got in there. I still don't know how it happened. But this other hand didn't say, <laughs> let him bleed to death, if he's that careless. No, it didn't. It grabbed a hanky out of my pocket, and he wrapped around it like this, and my feet took me to the house, and my mouth told my wife, I got hurt. She said, did you cut him off? I said, I don't know. I'm afraid to look. Folks, I have them all. They all work, too, because the body was working properly. That's the way a body works. Sad when we see crippled bodies that aren't working right. Why is that? Why is it that so much church life, there is contention and strife, lack of love, gossip, and all those things that cripple the body? Why is it? The proverb writer says, only by pride cometh contention. Think about that. Cause of people's pride. James says, wherefore cometh fightings and strife among you, cometh it not even with the war that's going on inside your heart. I'm just putting in my own words. There's fighting on the out among people because there's war in people's hearts. That's where we've got to start with. Sometimes there needs to be some spiritual surgery. Take care of the problems. Spiritual problems. But even in that, we have to do it Lawfully, Paul says. Strive lawfully. Timothy, get in there in the church. There's a lot of problems you need to deal with, but be careful you strive lawfully. Never do we need to stoop to the devil's methods, try to take care of problems. Never. There's got to be a way to do it Christ-like. Paul says we don't strive after the flesh. May God teach us how to stand and withstand. Having our feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Gospel of peace. Stand and withstand. 
You know, I sometimes think it seems like it takes so much church leaders' time and effort to keep things together and keep it going and take care of the problems and deal with situations that we haven't hardly have time to, to uh, carry out the Great Commission. And so involved with keeping all the machinery going, all the committees going, all the problems solved. I agree with George R. Brunk the first. I never knew the man. I knew George R. the second. But uh, George R. the first, I would understand, was a man with a powerful voice and he believed what he believed and he was convinced that's the right way and, and some people felt like he was just a little too strong and came across too strong on things and, and so uh, understand they decided well we're going to give him a message in a conference that uh, he won't get out on some of these things that he likes to attack so they gave him the message the love of God and I understand George R. Brunk, the first, got up and said, the love of God carries a stick. Revelation 3.19. He who I, who I love, I chasten. It's true. The love of God does carry a stick, but you've got to do it in the right way. You've got to do it lawfully. To be effective has to be done in the name of Jesus. Matthew 18, two or three are gathered together in my name. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, dealing with that terrible situation in Corinthian church, he said, when you're gathered together in the name of Jesus, then you deal with it. That means that we do it the way Jesus would have us to do it. We do it with the spirit of Christ. We do it with the spirit of love. The last message of Christ to the church before he left was not the Great Commission, as important as that is. But the last message to the church was repent. Repent. Get right with God. Get right with God and then you do the will of God. Somebody said it this way, a lot can be accomplished for God if you don't care who gets the credit for it. You don't care who gets the credit for it. If you're happy with your brother taking the lead and uh, he gets the credit, that's fine. It really doesn't matter, does it? Where we are, where God calls us, into his work as long as we are where God wants us to be. So in closing, let me ask you a few questions. Are you in your place as a member of the Bethel Church in preparation for this ordination? Are you where God wants you to be? Is your light shining? Is your picture broken? Are you 
there where God wants you? Is there going to be a unified message coming through as you gather together and pray together and uh, try to find the will of God this issue? So that God can be clearly shown in the world and uh, boys and girls and young people who observe this process can say, you know, God works through the church. God uses the church. God has used the church to bring about leaders, shepherds, take care of his work. God bless you. Let's have a closing song, Sonny. Close the meeting.